Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was raging against them. Early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost, they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You'll recall with me last winter, a young Asian-American family were traveling up in the great northwestern part of our country. Sudden snowstorm hit. They decided to try to take a shortcut to get home more quickly, got onto a road that they did not know well. Their car slid off the road into a ditch, and with the falling snow, it was almost completely covered. Uh, they stayed there a couple of days, and then the young husband father decided he needed to go for help, and he left his wife and small children in the car. Surely enough, the car was found. The wife, mother, the children, and the children all were fine. They started looking for the father, and they found him a few miles away. Uh, he had finally gone down in the snow and had frozen to death. The big question raised at the time, is it better to stay with the vehicle or to leave and go for help? And the authorities, the experts were saying, stay with the vehicle. Just a few weeks ago, I saw a capsizing of a boat on the news at night on one of our great lakes. And the question came again, is it better to stay with the boat that's upside down or filled with water or with a flotation device start swimming for help? And the expert said, stay with the boat. I think that's what Matthew's saying here. Those who've just been through the Gospel of Matthew with my Sunday school class know that Matthew loves allegory. He loved allegory. What does that mean in biblical terms? Years ago, my district superintendent down in Texas came to do the charge conference at my church, and he preached a sermon about Paul's being taken across the Mediterranean Sea for trial in Rome. And he talks about this huge storm that came up on the Mediterranean. And Luke writes in his book of Acts, they cast out four anchors to the wind and waited for the morning. And the district superintendent said, now what do you think those anchors were? They were faith and hope and love and so on. That's allegory, you see. They didn't throw out faith, hope, and love. They threw out metal objects hooked onto a rope or a chain that was going to hold them in the storm. I had a pastor of my mother and father, the man who married Gail and me all those years ago, preach one time about the uh, Gerasene demoniac, the man who lived in the cemetery because he was outcast from his community. 
He raged, uh, unable to, to, people to constrain him. When Jesus appeared, cast the demons out of him. But the demons that were in the man said, well, look at this swine herd here. Why don't you just make us go into the pigs? He said, that's fine with me. They went into the pigs. They ran off the cliff and drowned. And this pastor said, now, the story is, do you choose prince or pigs? In the story, the owners of the pigs asked Jesus to go away. You prefer prince or pigs? And he had come up with as many things as he could to start it with a P. Pride and prejudice and power and all sorts of things. But I've remembered it for 40 years. Even though it was allegory, you see. It was allegory. Matthew loves allegory. And here he has in front of him the gospel according to St. Mark. Mark has a story about a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew adds into it the part about Peter's walking on the water and so on. That's not in Mark's account. It's really interesting to see where he copies Mark word for word and where he chooses to veer from Mark. And there's several key words in the telling of this story that he's changed that makes it a very different story with a different meaning. So what did Matthew intend? The first hint is that he says Jesus compelled the disciples to get into the boat. And this is more than encouraging. This is even more than insisting. This is get in the boat. And the boat went out into the middle of this lake. And instead of it saying in Greek what your translator says, it was battered by the waves and the wind, it says it was tormented. It was tortured. Tormented? Tortured? Matthew is seeing here the boat is the church of his own day. That Jesus tells people to get in the boat the boat is the place for you when life is hardest of all. Be sure you're in the boat. There are two empty seats right here on the front row this morning. One of those was usually filled by Argus McKenzie. For 27 years that I know of, she sat right there. If for any reason our boys were out of town on a weekend, she sat next to Gail. But if they were here, she sat right across the aisle from Gail. I had Argus's funeral Wednesday. A year ago, she had asked me if I would come out, bring a little notebook along. She wanted me to know things about her that I might not know. She had no children. She had a stepdaughter who was very kind to her, wonderful to her, and she loved her. But she wanted to give me these things firsthand. And so I took a little notebook and I made copious notes as she talked to me for an hour. She was born in Piedmont, Oklahoma. It's now become almost a part of Oklahoma City. It was a separate little town when she was a girl. She grew up to a farming family, as most folks were back in the late 20s, early 30s. She had one sister. She had twin brothers. And the four of them and mom and dad kept up this little farm. This farming mom and dad wanted their children to have benefit of education. They sent her the first year out of high school to Oklahoma City University. But our church-related schools can be a little more expensive, and she transferred the next year to Central State. She was graduated there when she was only 21 with a Bachelor's of Arts degree in music education, and she taught in the public schools of Oklahoma for 41 years. 
She got married when she was 29, but the marriage didn't go well. She was divorced when she was 41 and lived alone for the last 39 years of her life. When you sit down with someone and hear them talk about their life, there were good times, of course. When we arrived in Oklahoma 27 years ago this month, we wanted to be good Oklahomans, so we went out to Discoveryland to see Oklahoma. Argus was playing Aunt Eller. Richard Sutliff was playing Judd. Richard sang at her funeral on Wednesday. She would have been thrilled about that. She had good times being Aunt Eller. She knew a lot of good times teaching music, music she loved, to her choirs for 41 years. But she buried her mother. She buried her father. She buried her sister. She buried both of her brothers. She ended up living alone for 39 years. And at the end, she was going blind. It frightened her to be blind in many ways alone in the world and to be blind. A little over a month ago, she fell, hit her head really hard, and went quickly downhill. She was 80. We had her funeral on Wednesday. I think in all the times she said in my Bible studies at School of Continuing Education, she must have heard me say many times, stay in the boat, stay in the boat, don't leave the boat. In the most difficult of times, there's hope and help in the boat. Number two, early in the morning, they saw Jesus walking on the water. Now, this is very important, this walking on the water, because in all the rest of the Bible, the only one who walks on water is God. God walks on water. If you read carefully in the Hebrew Scriptures, I quickly found six Six stories where God walked on the water. God could also walk across the heavens. And when God walked across the heavens, one heard thunder and often then rain would come. Water to the Jews represented the chaotic powers. At the very beginning, things were covered with water. And only when God spoke and began to separate the waters and create dry land was there dry land. And that word for chaos is Shoah. It's the word the Jews prefer for what happened to them under Adolf Hitler. Holocaust is not their word. It means the burning. That's not the word they want. The word they prefer is Shoah. Chaos came back again. Only God Almighty walks on the water. So what is Matthew saying when he tells you Jesus walks on water? That the Almighty is present in him. And if you didn't get that, he tells you more specifically by having Jesus say to the disciples, Ego eimi, he said. Don't be afraid. Ego eimi. Now we know that Matthew also has right in front of him as he writes the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, because every time he quotes from the Bible, he quotes the Greek version of it, word for word. And this time, he's quoting ego eimi. It doesn't say it is I. It says. I am. When Moses asked for another name at the burning bush so that he wouldn't have to contend with all these thousands of people daily screaming, Il, El, Al, Il, El, Al, I need a new name. The one he got was Eye, Asher, Eye, I am. And it's translated into Greek in the Septuagint as Ego, Emi, 
if you didn't get the point that only God walks on water and now Jesus is walking on water, then Jesus says to you, I am the one who was at the burning bush, the one who was in Egypt, the one who parted the seas, the one who gave the Ten Commandments, is the one who was also in Mary's child, Jesus. Dr. Elie Wiesel, who survived Auschwitz, Nobel Peace Prize winner, a professor at our Boston University Seminary, has asked, does God need the flowery phrases we heap upon him in our prayers? He does not. We need to offer a proper ascription to God, but God is more interested in those things and those people for whom we pray. Prayer should never be against anyone, he says, only for someone. Cry out to your God. Cry out to him who walks on the water, him whose name is not to be spoken. To that one, he will hear you. Number three, Peter said, I want to walk on the water. What if I just said to you, only one walks on the water, that's God. Only one walks on the water, that God who was also in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Peter wants to walk on the water. And as he starts walking, he suddenly is aware again of the wind and the waves. And he starts to sink. Jesus grabs him by the wrist, lifts him up and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And this Greek word, doubt, is really a word that says, Why did you try to go in two directions at the same time? Why did you seem to be focused on me, but you were also aware of the wind and the waves, more impressed by them, more impressed? Why did you go in two directions at the same time? A couple of weeks ago, I was reading a column from our Church of the Servant, United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City, their minister of youth. Uh, Jeremy Sanders was going to get to preach in the big services over there. Senior minister was on vacation. Jeremy was excited about that. You could tell from the way he was writing. And as he was writing, trying to get people to come and hear him that next Sunday, he said, My favorite program on television is Flip This House. I'd never seen that program. So that night I changed channels and I watched it for three or four minutes. And then I knew why I didn't watch that program. Because I can fix nothing. That's not a gift of mine. I can fix nothing. I grew up in a household. My father's attitude was, if something doesn't work, hit it with a hammer. If it doesn't work after that, hit it harder. And that's sort of the way I grew up. So it's better if I don't start hitting things with hammers, call somebody who knows how to fix it. But Flip This House is about walking into a house and deciding what it could look like if different things were done to it. What could this old house look like if the right things were done to it? You flip it. And one didn't have to go to Church of the Servant to figure out where Jeremy was going to go with that one. Everybody's heart needs flipping. Everybody's life needs flipping, the old done away, and the new coming in. Renew a clean spirit 
within me, O Lord, a new and clean spirit. Number four, if you're still not convinced what Matthew is about here, look at the last verse. And the people in the boat said, Truly, you are the Son of God. The church is supposed to be made of people who affirm together week after week, Truly, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. The God Almighty, who first spoke and first caused all that is, was in fact present in Jesus of Nazareth, whom we acknowledge to be our Christ and Lord. And those in the boat see it. Those in the boat hear it. I was reading recently about Zechariah Char. Little Zechariah was born in Sudan. You know enough about what's been going on in Sudan for a long time to know it was not a good place to be born. But with a first name like Zechariah, what do you know about this little child right off? His parents have been influenced by Christian missionaries. No question about it. They named the little boy Zechariah. But in the horrible war that ensued, the drought, the famine, and the disease that struck, he lost both of his parents. And he became one of those that's been called now by several writers, the lost children or the lost girls and boys of Sudan. As the fighting grew more intense, as the women were raped and murdered and men were, were, were sacrificed, there were more and more orphans. And one of these Christian groups said, we have got to get you out of here while there's still time. Little Zechariah was five. I have a granddaughter who's five. Five years old. I cannot imagine her walking a thousand miles. Little Zechariah, those other children, were marched a thousand miles to safety in Ethiopia. Four years later, civil war hit Ethiopia. And the people who loved these children said, we have to go walking again. And they walked them a thousand miles to Kenya. But eight weeks ago, Zechariah Char walked down the aisle of Grace Episcopal Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to be ordained a priest. Stay in the boat. Stay in the boat. There is help. There is hope in the boat.